Well, burnout is a common term, right? Burnout's a common term. You have heard of burnout, right? Maybe you've experienced burnout yourself. Maybe you're experiencing burnout even right now. Or maybe you're experiencing something right now that you're not sure exactly how to define, but it doesn't feel great, and you're not sure what steps to take to recover maybe the energy or the attitude that you once had. There was a season in life where you had a greater amount of energy, a greater, I don't know, a better attitude, and and that's lost, and that's all you know. Maybe you're experiencing burnout. It's not a clinical term. We learned that last week. Burnout's not really a clinical term. You don't get diagnosed with burnout officially, but it's a reality. It's this experience that, as a society, we've defined, and we can often see it in ourselves, and we can see it in other people as well. And actually, most of the time, other people see it in us before we see it in ourselves and vice versa. Oftentimes, we can see that somebody else might be burning out before they even recognize these signs in themselves. Monique Valcor is this executive coach. She's a management professor, PhD from Cornell. Marshall mentioned her name last week, and she says this, hard data on the prevalence of burnout is elusive. Some researchers say that as few as 7% of professionals have been seriously impacted by burnout, but others have documented rates as high as 50% among medical residents and 85% among financial professionals. Pray for your financial friends. Research has also linked burnout to many negative physical and mental health outcomes, including coronary artery disease, hypertension, sleep disturbances, depression, and anxiety, as well as to increased alcohol and drug use. Moreover, burnout has been shown to produce feelings of futility and alienation, undermine the quality of relationships, and diminish long-term career prospects. It's not a pretty sight, right? Needless to say, these effects can be intense, and it's our strong conviction I think here at Coburg Alliance Church, that God doesn't want you to remain in burnout. That's a space of unhealth. And so even if you're experiencing it now, I don't think God wants you to stay there. He wants to help you move out of it. And we believe that God's presence and his power offers us some help as we navigate life in relation to burnout. Before we get to a couple of our scripture passages today, let me share one more comment on burnout. And this is something we learned in last week's message as well. It's important. Monique Valcor, by way of psychologist Christina Maslach and her team, they, they have identified together three components of burnout. Maybe you remember them from last week. And as we go through these components, I want you to ask these two questions of yourself. Have this just running in the back of your mind as we go through this message today. Do I see these components in myself? And do I see these in anyone else? Do I see these components in myself? Do I see them in anyone else? Like I said a moment ago, oftentimes others see burnout in us before we see it in ourselves. And we want to be the kind of people that help others become aware and take healthy steps toward beating burnout also. It's not just about us being healthy, it's about others being healthy. And if we're being the church, the way the church is meant to be, then we're caring for the people around us. So if you remember, three key components. First is exhaustion. This is maybe the central component, and probably the one that you think about most when it comes to burnout. When you think about being burnt out, you're like, I am so tired. I'm exhausted. I have severe physical, cognitive, emotional fatigue. It undermines my ability to work effectively and maybe feel positively about what I'm doing. The second is cynicism, this erosion of engagement, this way that we distance ourselves from work. And the third is inefficacy. We feel incompetent. We have this sense of a lack of achievement, a lack of 
productivity. All these components are, are uh, connected, right? They work together. And I've experienced these. I was deployed overseas with the Army for 18 months, and this key indicator to me that I was burnt out is that even really small tasks were exhausting, right? Even these small things that if I wasn't burnt out, I could have done them and I would have moved on. I wouldn't have thought twice. They became so tiring for me. I became less able to do these things as efficiently, and I had this, oh, not this again attitude. You know what I'm talking about. Oh, not that again, right? The sense of cynicism was a part of what I experienced. I was burned out. Good news, though, and there's good news, is that we can get help. And this week, we're talking about getting that help in what I think is the most unlikely place. It's lament. Lament, right? How weird is that? Lament as a source of helping us beat burnout. A lament is this. It's a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Passionate expression of grief or sorrow. That's a lament. And what's so interesting is how often we find it in the Bible. We might not expect that, but it's all over the place. We find uh, lament in the Psalms, and we're going to look at a Psalm today. We're going to look at Psalm 13. We find it when Jesus laments over the death of Lazarus, right? A good friend of his dies, and Jesus wept. He lamented over a good friend now gone. Jesus laments in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're going to talk about that story as well today. Just before Jesus goes to the cross, he's aware of what's going to happen and we find him lamenting in the garden. And did you, did you know, maybe you know this, there's even a book of the Bible called Lamentations. Yeah, the whole book is actually dedicated to lament. So for God, lament, and us understanding lament, how to lament, lamenting well, so to speak, it's important. God himself thinks that this is an important aspect of our spiritual lives. It's an important aspect of our health. And I wonder if lament often escapes us because of our modern focus on happiness, right? We focus heavily on happiness. Maybe we can't stand to lament because it's this admission that I'm not as happy as I'd like to be. Or I'm not as happy as I'd like to believe I am or, or that we'd like others to believe we are. We bury the opportunity to lament in favor of just pushing on toward happiness. And our constant push toward happiness or our lack of willingness to passionately express grief and sorrow, it means the stress just builds and builds, and when stress builds, burnout is right around the corner. Maybe lament escapes us because we haven't learned how to process loss. I wonder if this is especially meaningful for Christians. I mean, it's meaningful for everyone, but maybe Christians in particular because we feel like we're supposed to gain so much when we follow Christ, and we do. We gain a lot from following Jesus, but then when loss comes, it sort of feels like betrayal. Like, God, where were you in that moment? Even if our minds agree that loss is a part of the Christian life, that God doesn't guarantee this pain-free life here and now, when we then experience it, it throws us into a difficult and confusing season. Loss comes in many forms. And when loss mounts, when it isn't dealt with, when we don't properly allow ourselves to mourn, the stress that results can also lead to burnout. Henry Nouwen, he passed away in 96, but he's, his work continues to impact people in deep ways today. He wrote this piece on healing, and in it he discusses mourning and dancing. They're sort of opposite ends of the spectrum if you think about how we experience life, right? Mourning and dancing, we, we often hang out in the middle. We don't quite want to mourn deeply. We don't quite want to dance 
in the service, though feel free to dance, Jeremy, if you want to. You can dance during the service. We often hang out in the middle. It's a little bit more comfortable. So we avoid mourning. We avoid dancing. I'm going to make this article available to you in our daily newsletter, or our weekly newsletter, because it's so good. But for now, let's look at what how Nowen describes loss. Here's what he says. This experience of loss is very real for us. It's part of our daily lives. At times, it even seems that life is just one long series of losses. There's the loss of our parents, children, friends, not just through death, but what is even more painful through conflict, misunderstanding, anger, and resentment. There's the loss of our jobs, careers, successes, and good names, not only through circumstances beyond our control, but also through our own failures. There's the loss of our hopes and dreams, not only through age, but also through the discovery of corruption and betrayal among the people we've trusted. There's finally the loss of meaning and purpose in our lives, not only because our minds and hearts become tired, but also because long-cherished ways of thinking and praying are suddenly ridiculed or considered old-fashioned. You could say that each of us, in one way or another, loses the good old days, which might not have been as good as we think, but which somehow are locked into our memories as the foundation stones of our lives. How many of you have been enduring loss over the past two years during this pandemic, but maybe you haven't processed it yet? I know I've lost some things. I've lost time with friends and especially time with family. My wife and I are from the States, and so over the past couple of years, we couldn't see family nearly as much as we normally would, as much as we would have liked. We lost time with them. We've lost opportunities to deepen friendships. We were here for about a year and a half before the pandemic hit, and so we were developing friendships, but then in the pandemic, it's actually hard to maintain those, to deepen them when you can't see people face to face. We've lost a little bit of energy along the way, but that could be because we have two toddlers. Let's, let's be honest. That's probably the real reason. Even apart from the pandemic, we experienced loss in life. But the past couple years seems to have heightened our experience of loss, our collective experience of loss. We've all kind of lost something. We've experienced that together. And maybe we haven't done anything with that loss yet. Maybe that's turned into burnout. Maybe it's turned into exhaustion and cynicism and inefficacy. I don't know. You have to kind of sort that out for yourself. But I know I've experienced some of that. Well, lamenting actually offers us the chance to express our deepest griefs and our deepest sorrows. We see that in Psalm 13. So if you would turn there with me, it's going to be on the screen as well if you don't have it. This psalm is going to help us understand the value of lament and then how to do it well. And as we'll see, lament is a way that we can beat burnout, whatever the cause. So here we go, Psalm 13. This is a psalm of David. O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we've defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. But I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you've rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he's good to me. Sure sounds like burnout. Right? especially in that first stanza. It sounds like David is experiencing burnout. As I mentioned, it's a psalm of David, and David, especially before he became king, he experienced some serious stress. I mean, it was intense. He had enemies, and enemies that he actually didn't deserve to have. 
but he had them nonetheless. And though the psalm doesn't give us enough detail to know exactly what David is talking about when he writes this psalm, we can tell that he's been under stress for a long period of time. He says things like this, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? He's not just being dramatic. He's truly wondering when God's going to remember him and act on his behalf, and I wonder if you felt that way. Maybe that's your experience of faith, even now wondering when God is going to respond. Thinking that God has maybe forgotten you. Confused because it seems like God is for you, not against you, but if that's true, then where is he? You're not alone in feeling that way. Even David had those thoughts, and David expresses them. This psalm helps us to see that there's actually this healthy process in moments like that. There's no doubt that David's struggling, and this psalm of lament helps us know that we can actually bring our griefs and our sorrows to God. He wants to hear them. Commentator Greg Boyles, he says this about Psalm 13, were we to hear someone praying in this fashion today, most of us would take offense at at such irreverence against the holy and faultless God. But even the complaint, how long will you hide your face from me, contains the assumption of a direct relationship, which God is charged with breaching. As we readers interpret such a harsh accusation, we should be struck by the speaker's high expectations the petitions for God himself to look and to give light to my eyes divulge face-to-face relationship as well. This context allows for direct, candid confrontation. Certainly the partners are not assumed to be equals. God and David, they're not equal. But the assumed strength of the divine human bond encourages frankness. Psalm 13 is this window into what it's like to have a personal relationship with God, and it includes the ability to be frank. Because God's relationship with us has that kind of strength. He can take it. The first stanza in this psalm is about lament. It's about lament. The second is about a desire for action. David wants God to act in a certain way. He's calling out to God. He says, turn and answer me, O Lord my God. Restore the sparkle to my eyes or I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying we've defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall. The stress of his situation, the reality of this possibility that his enemies are going to defeat him and gloat because of his downfall is so intense that he feels like if something doesn't change, he's going to die. That's one of the ways people express burnout. There's such a weight on their shoulders. Things are so intense that if something doesn't change, if something isn't relieved, I'll be crushed. I'll die under the weight of what I'm experiencing. It takes every last ounce of energy to push through the exhaustion. And in the end, we want what David wanted. We want this restoration of energy. We want life. We want the sparkle of life brought back to our eyes. We need intervention. We need help. We need God to do something, and so we call out for action. And the third stanza is all about trust. It's about confidence in the goodness of God. This translation makes it sound, the one that I use, it makes it sound a little bit like God has already rescued him. But the language is a little bit more vague than that. In the NIV, it doesn't say, I will rejoice because you have rescued me. It says, my heart rejoices in your salvation. And this is more about confidence and trust in whatever the outcome is going to be. David doesn't know what the future will hold exactly. 
He just knows that after moments of lament over an impossibly weighty situation and a call for God to act, that the God he knows has heard his cry, and if there's anything God can do, he will. The psalm is a movement from lament to desire for action to trust. We'll shorten it. Lament, action, and trust. It's that simple. Lament, action, and trust. And we find this exact same model for situations in the life of Jesus. This happens when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's this iconic scene. It takes place just moments before Jesus gets arrested. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows that Judas will betray him. He goes to this garden to pray, and here's what it says in Matthew 26, 37 to 39. He took Peter and Zebedee's sons, his two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. You can see the lament. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, and here's the action, he's calling on God to do something, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. And then there's trust. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. In this short scene, we see Jesus on the verge of crucifixion expressing extreme sorrow and grief, the desire for God to act in a specific way, and his expression of trust in whatever the outcome might be. It's lament and then action and then trust. If Psalm 13 is around the time that David was running from Saul, then we know that his desire for action and his trust in God led to the outcome that David hoped for. He became king, and though he still had enemies, Saul was no longer after him. It actually worked out for David. But in Jesus' case, it didn't. The desire for action for God to allow some other option outside of crucifixion, it didn't happen the way that Jesus asked. But in both cases, both for David and for Jesus, they trusted in the goodness of God, whatever the outcome. I think the model of lament and action and trust can help us in seasons of burnout. It can help us prevent burnout and recover from burnout if that's what we're experiencing. If we put this model into practice, I think it's going to do three things. First, it's going to help us confront the reality of what's causing our deep grief and sorrow. I had a friend who, who had lost his dad. I'm sorry, whose dad lost his dad. And it had been a few months, and he wasn't processing this grief well. I only know that because my friend's mom noticed it in her husband and told her son, my friend, if you can track with me. Okay, you're tracking, good. Basically, I just knew about this because her mom noticed it. She could see that her husband hadn't been grieving well. He'd been acting in ways that, uh, that showed her that he wasn't grieving or processing this loss very well. It wasn't a healthy thing, and, and he wasn't confronting the reality of what was causing his deep grief and his sorrow. And, and when we do that, we set ourselves up for burnout. We do that because, because we're trying to sort of do two things at once. We're trying to constantly maybe push away the grief that needs to get processed. We're pushing away the grief, the sorrow. And we become a little bit more unhealthy because we're trying to both do that and still continue with life as normal. 
And we end up in this nasty cycle of greater burnout, right? So we are experiencing burnout. We're trying to push this away. We're trying to keep going in life. And this cycle just continues until burnout just takes over. Lament then is a practice which allows us to process these worrisome, these painful, these brutal realities of life with the one being in the universe who can actually handle it. It's good to go to other people. We encourage you to go to other people with your sorrow and with your grief. I go to my wife with things when things make me sad. I talk to my wife about these things, but she can't handle everything, right? No one person can handle everything. We're limited, but God can. He can handle your grief and your sorrow, and he cares more deeply than you know. So this model helps us first confront the reality of what's causing our deep grief and sorrow, and then it helps us realize and express our human limitations. We start to realize as we call on God for action that there are certain things that God can do that we can't. It's just how it is. There are certain things God can do that we can't and that we shouldn't try to do. Author Christopher Ash, in a book, Zeal Without Burnout, Seven Keys to a Lifelong Ministry of Sustainable Sacrifice, he reveals three areas that we need that God doesn't. We need sleep, and God doesn't. We need Sabbath rest, and God doesn't. We need friendship, and God doesn't. Not in the same way. Because we're created beings, we're made from dust, we need certain things that God as the creator doesn't need. And acting like we aren't created beings means that we're pretending to be the creator. Have you ever done that? You sort of pretend to be God for a moment. You try to do the things that only God can do. And the longer we pretend to be God, the the easier it is to burn out. Following this process, the lament and action and trust helps us see the things that we need to leave to God and helps us to see the things that we can realistically and appropriately manage ourselves. There are those things. We can do things on our own. There are things that God wants us to manage, but there are things that only God can manage. And this process helps us see that. And finally, it helps us live with trust. God's knowledge will always be infinitely greater than ours. You probably knew that already. God knows more than us. Jesus himself didn't know everything. If you remember, he didn't know after the resurrection when he was going to be coming back. He said, it's up to the Father. I don't know. He didn't know everything, and this process of lament and action and trust helps us to correctly align our relationship with God. It's crucial. It's important to express our sorrow and grief, to ask God to act on our behalf, and ultimately to trust that he knows what's best. The outcome might be what we ask for, like in David's case, and it might not, like in Jesus' case. But in both situations, what was best happened in the end. And I know that's complicated. I still don't really have that sorted out. But I know that that's the healthiest place for me to be in life. It's a place where I can live confident that whatever happens is held in God's hands. Truth is also that we might not see the full picture in this life, and that's sometimes hard to wrap our minds around as well. But following this process of lament and action and trust, it helps us beat burnout because we confront the reality of our deepest griefs and our deepest sorrows. We realize and express human limitations, and we gain trust in the God whose presence and power can restore the sparkle to our eyes like nobody else can. If you're experiencing burnout, then following this model might be what God uses to help you beat burnout.
I'm going to invite Noah up, and in a moment we're going to share in communion together, but let me pray as we enter into this time. God, we thank you. We thank you for moments when we can gather, when we can reflect on Psalm 13, when we can look at the life of Jesus. Jesus in the garden as he processes, as he laments, as he calls out to you for action, but he accepts, places his trust in you for whatever the outcome will be. God, we all come in seasons of burnout with loss, with exhaustion, with cynicism, maybe with feelings of being inefficient. And God, if we are experiencing that now, Lord, as we step into this time of communion, I just pray that those things would be brought to mind. That those things would be offered to you in the same way that Jesus offered those things to you. In the same way that David offers those things to you. Help us recover from those moments of burnout. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this time I want to shift our attention to communion. You're going to have this, this little guy. If it's a gluten-free one, it's a little bit different. If it's the other one, take a look at it. There's going to be a little thing on top that you need to peel off. That's going to give you your wafer. And then there's something, you're going to peel it again after we take the wafer, and you're going to have access to the juice. Be careful, don't spill on yourself. Sometimes it's hard to pull, so. so watch yourself. I don't want to be responsible for you getting juice on your, your uh, pants there, Paul. So, All right, communion. What is communion? It's this practice that Christ himself actually gave us. And we can remember the moments leading up to his death on the cross, including those moments spent in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Christ followed the model that we explored today in Psalm 13. Lament, action, and trust. In these moments, we remember that through Christ, we gain life and hope. And though Christ came to give life and hope, that life and hope, it didn't come without a cost. That cost was Jesus' life. It was a cost that Christ was well aware of. And he gave his life willingly, knowing that it would result in the salvation of all who would repent and follow him. And so we remember that in these moments. If you follow Jesus, we encourage you to join with us in communion by receiving the bread in the cup. And if you don't yet follow Jesus, then we encourage you to receive the new life that Jesus offers through his sacrifice on the cross for you. We're going to start with the bread. And it represents the body of Jesus, which is broken for us. Jesus was scourged. He was spit on. He was beaten. He was nailed to a cross. And Christ calls us to remember these moments, important as they are to our salvation. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we'll take the cup. 
It represents the blood that was poured out for us on the cross. Christ's life that was given for us as a covering, as a sacrifice, so that we could have eternal life. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Father, again, we come before you grateful, grateful that we can celebrate this practice of communion together, that we can remember your death on the cross, because in the end, all of this lamenting and calling out to you for action and putting our trust in you, it wouldn't matter so much if you hadn't come to the cross, if you hadn't died for us, if you hadn't given us new life, But because we have new life, because your power and your presence lives in us, we know that lament and action and trust is a process that we know you listen to. We can bring our sorrows and our griefs to you. You can handle them. We can be frank and we can offer the difficulties of life to you. You'll hear and you'll answer. We pray these things in Jesus' name.